0: fundamentalists insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord that we must believe that the original documents of the scripture were inerrantly dictated to men that we must believe that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alien deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner and that we must believe the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven. Has anybody right to deny Christians a name to those who differ from them on such points? And to shut against them the doors of Christian fellowship? So said one of the most influential American preachers of the 20th century in his most infamous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Harry Emerson Fosdick preached his sermon on May 21st, 1922. Hitting the Presbyterian Church like a bombshell, says George Marsden, the well-known historian. This sermon functioned for the modernist controversialist controversy, much like Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg uh, back in the uh, 16th century. Like Luther, in his 95 Theses, Uh, This sermon expressed articulated and precipitated conflict that had been building for generations. However, unlike Martin Luther, Fosdick was challenging historic biblical Christianity. So for today's lesson, uh, I'm going to be uh, presenting the second in our series on the Modernist uh, Fundamentalist Controversy. Uh, of the 20th century, uh, out of which our denomination was born. Uh, So T2 last week did the first in the series, uh, uh, giving a broad overview. Uh, And this week, I will be introducing you to Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, He was a Baptist preacher, uh, but his uh, most influential and uh, significant era of his life, he was serving in a Presbyterian church in New York City. So what I desire uh, to do through this lesson is first I'm going to give you a sketch of uh, Fosdick's life, uh, give you a sense of who this man was. Uh, He was important, uh, not just in Presbyterian circles, uh, but in the United States uh, in general in the 20th century. So uh, just he's an important figure all around, uh, not just for our story, but um, for our story as well. So it's important that we have a sense of who this man was. Um, And I also want to uh, provide you with an overview of his famous uh, sermon from which I began this lesson, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Uh, At the end, there will be a little bit of time for uh, reflecting on uh, some of the lessons that we can learn from the life of Fosdick. So let's begin uh, looking at his life. Uh, He was uh, born on May 24th in 1878 in a Christian home. And by the age of seven, he had professed faith and was bap and was baptized. Uh, from what I read, uh, he seemed to have been a pious and impressive young uh, man. Uh, he was committed to his faith; he took it seriously. Uh, um, and so yeah, so he. <clears throat> He's an impressive young man, uh, but also uh, felt, seemed to uh, have fallen into the sins that uh, many young people will fall into as well. His dad was a school teacher who financially struggled, and his uh, mother had uh, experienced some debil- debilitating health conditions, which uh, made his home life a struggle. And so by the time Fosdick uh, actually went on to college, he'd begun to question the faith in which he'd been raised. Uh, To compound the intellectual difficulties that he was experiencing, his father had a mental breakdown which required Harry to take a year off of school uh, within his uh, first year of being off at college. Uh, He needed to go home, help provide for his family. So upon returning to college at Colgate University, uh, Harry came under the influence of one of his professors, William Newton Clark. Uh, Fosdick claimed that Clark saved his faith. Clark, however, did not subscribe to the traditional form of Christianity in which Fosdick had been raised. Rather, he was part of the uh, emerging modernist movement, uh, which was influenced by the liberal uh, theology of uh, higher criticism out of Germany. Uh, really influenced by men like Friedrich Schleiermacher and the Adolf von Harnack. The liberal theology that Fosdick learned from Clark would be cemented when he uh, went on to study uh, for his bachelor's in divinity at Union Seminary in 1901 in preparation for the pastoral ministry. And it was at this point in time in uh, preparing my lesson, I thought, I really need to uh, spend a little bit of time uh, describing what I mean by liberal theology or modernist theology. I don't want to assume that people have uh, an understanding of what those that, uh, terms mean uh, so I'm just going to take a slight pause on Fosdick himself and explain this uh, because it's really this liberal or modernist theology uh, which shaped Fosdick and thus shaped his ministry and the controversies with which he was involved uh, so for, the first thing I need to note is uh, sometimes I've used the phrase modernism sometimes the phrase liberalism and I more or less mean them as synonyms uh, you know there might be some academic circumstances in which there will be nuance to the two terms, uh, but it's important that you realize that these uh, two two phrases were essentially talking about the same thing: modernism or liberalism. It's also important that when we talk about this, we note that um, we're not ne- a, a theological liberal is not necessarily a cons- a political liberal. There may be overlap at times. Uh, I think more so in our current context, it's more common uh but especially back then they definitely were not equated there were men who were very politically conservative who were on the side of theological liberalism uh and in fact there J Gresham Machen uh though he was conservative in senses uh he he was a uh really the, the most fierce defender of conservative Christianity and yet on some issues he held positions that would be seen as more liberal uh, so it's important that when I'm talking about liberalism that we not necessarily attach all of our modern political notions of what it means to be on the left or to be liberal, uh, but that we uh, really take it for what it is. And so let me try to articulate just the basic mindset of modernist Christianity or liberal Christianity. Um, so first we need to think that the phrase modern really emerges out of the idea that Uh, They saw themselves as being in the modern age uh, with advancements in scientific and philosophical knowledge. And there's a belief that we should not uh, dismiss those scientific advances, those philosophical advances in thinking about our theology. Now, as a side, I I would say we shouldn't dismiss those thoughts either, either, but we have to have rightly ordered thinking. I just let you know. But the way that they, the seriousness with which they let science dominate their thinking and, um, and really dictate their theology, uh, became very apparent in the ways that they departed from the historic Christian faith. Regarding the Bible, they saw, they read it as a human document, not as a, uh, God's special revelation to his church. Uh, regarding miracles, they, more or less dismiss them all. Everything from Moses splitting the Red Sea uh, to Jesus' virgin birth and uh, his resurrection uh, from the grave. Uh, though I can't speak for all uh, modernists, it was not—it's not atypical among them to deny the deity of Christ or to try to e- at least try to evade answering it in a straightforward way. Um, and they definitely. We're not big fans of the idea of a wrathful God. That would be seen as uh, something from a bygone day, something that religions of the past had, that we had really developed beyond in our modern times. So over the course of a couple decades, all the Presbyterian seminaries would go liberal. Uh, however, Union Seminary in New York City, where Fosdick was attending, uh, was especially known for its liberalism. Uh, to give a sense of the time, I uh, have found a great quote uh, in Eric Metaxas's book on Bonhoeffer, because uh, Bonhoeffer from Germany uh, had come to the United States to study theology for a time, and uh, though he already had a doctorate from uh, schools in Germany, I think maybe even... To, I don't quote me on that uh, the point is he'd already received a significant amount of education from top, some of the top liberal scholars in the world I, I thought it was really fascinating to hear Bonhoeffer's description of union it uh, gives you a real sense of uh, what the mindset was like at that school so here's uh, Bonhoeffer's own words describing union there is no theology here They talk a blue streak without the slightest substantive foundation, with no evidence of any criteria. The students, on the average 25 to 30 years old, are completely clueless with respect to what dogmatics is really about. They are unfamiliar with even the most basic questions. They become intoxicated with liberal and humanistic phrases, laugh at the fundamentalists, and yet, basically are not even up to their level. Now I doubt you're going to find many uh, fans of liberal theology, uh, appreciating this quote from Bonhoeffer, uh, but, from Bonhoeffer, but I think it's important that we know Bonhoeffer was not a, a uh, traditional conservative uh, evangelical. He, he had his own theological problems of his own, but it's important to note he's not saying this as a slight because he's on the right side of the debate. Uh, this was his observation is more or less an outsider. And, uh, he was, uh, he even had his concerns, even though he would have had different answers to those concerns than say we would have. Uh, I, I found it quite interesting and helpful to see how he described, uh, not just the school, but the mindset of what he observed there. And we'll see that very much, uh, same kind of thinking, uh, as we continue to see how Fosdick, uh, developed. Um, and so while we will, uh, I'm going to hear more directly from Fosick later on when we look at his sermon, uh, I also think it's helpful to hear a little bit more about him, about his, from him about his general attitude toward a theology. He was known for uh, boasting that he had never uh, recited the Apostles' Creed, uh, and he even said himself, God defined is God finished. Uh, this is a mindset that says we can't delve too deeply into theology, because to do that would be to uh, restrict God. If we define God, we, we're putting him in a box. And who are we to do that? Well, I'd admit we have to be careful with who are, with this kind of who are we to define God. But if it's based on what God has revealed about himself, we have to be careful. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm really trying to present Fosdick for, on his own uh, basis and not uh, get too uh, uh, bogged down with my own side of things. But I, I, it's so hard not to go there. I, clearly, I hope you realize that Fosdick is not a guy that I'm uh, finding myself in agreement with. But I think it is important that we uh, understand those with whom we disagree. So uh, another thing that uh, Fosdick said, just again, to get a sense of his attitude and his mindset uh, toward theology... Uh, regarding the Trinity, he said, I care little whether a man believes in Trinitarian dogma, but I care a lot whether a man has a Trinitarian perspective. And you'll find this often in liberal thought, you know, that they they like to talk about this some sort of, su- sort of subject of, of experience of things, but don't want to nail things down in propositions, as though to do so, again, would be to put God in a box. But we have to realize... Scripture has given us propositions of God. Uh, and so he has revealed himself in that. And that is the kind of thing that he is fiercely opposing. I think it's also important to note that uh as pat as uh Fosdick uh, is primarily a pastor, not a theologian. Um his influence in the world of uh Christianity is really as a popularizer of liberalism. Uh liberalism At this point in time was primarily in the, in the seminaries and the universities and leaking into the pulpits. Uh, but Fosdick is one of the figures who really makes it explode, uh, on a lay level and at a popular level in the United States. Uh, And additionally, he uh, had influence in transforming, uh, the way people saw pastoral ministry. He brought in a lot of psychology. He even at one point in time said something about preaching really just being counseling, uh, at a um, to a large crowd, and again with some of these things, there's a sense in which I could agree with that, but knowing a little bit more about his thought, I fiercely disagree with it. So hopefully, this gives us just a little bit of a grasp of his thought and his mind and his attitude towards things. So as we continue to look at how his life unfolded, mainly as a pastor in different positions, uh, we know what it is that this uh, he's bringing to each of these settings. So So before our slight detour, I had mentioned that Fosdick started seminary at a union in 1901. Uh, In 1903, he was ordained before graduating uh, in a Baptist church, and by 1904, he had graduated with his bachelor's in divinity and received his first pastoral call to the First Baptist Church of Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, While he would later get his uh, master's of divinity from Columbia Seminary in teach part-time as an adjunct faculty back at Union, where he'd originally studied, he always felt like his primarily, primary call was to the pulpit, not to the academy. Uh, and it's in the pulpit that he believed that he could reach the ordinary man and engage in a sort of personal ministry, which is really what he believed his life calling was. And over the next couple decades of his life, uh, leading up to his infamous sermon, which I... Uh, Mentioned at the beginning of this lesson, uh, there were a few. There were really not many significant events. We're going to get to that sermon pretty quickly. Uh, though it is important to note, he uh, did spend a year as an army chaplain in France during World War II. Later in life, he would actually uh, note that he had regretted that, uh, regretted his support of the war effort. So really, uh, skipping through he uh, through uh, the next uh, couple decades, he works as a pastor, uh, serves mainly in that church in New Jersey. And then in 1918, uh, we see a significant milestone. He's actually, uh, brought on as a, uh, assistant preaching pastor at First Presbyterian Church in New York. Now remember, he's a Baptist, uh, but, uh, Presbyterian churches, uh, could at least, you know, mainline Presbyterian churches could with the approval of a Presbytery bring a a man who was an ordained Baptist to be a pulpit supply in their church and that's what uh, Fosdick did he was a uh, well, he was gaining a reputation as a well known uh, speaker and preacher and so this uh, established significant church in New York brought him on uh, as a preaching pastor um and this is, it's going to be, this, I, I make a big deal about this. You might be thinking, who, who really cares if he's ordained as a Presbyterian or ordained as a Baptist? But as the story develops, you'll see why that's a crucial detail. And it was during his time at uh, First Presbyterian in New York that Fosdick preached his famous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Um, and since I'll be providing more information on that sermon later in the lesson, Really, the only thing I want to say about it right now is that it was a full-on assault against those who would insist on the historic Christian faith. The sermon spread like wildfire, partially because it was published in three different periodicals, but more so because J.D. Rockefeller personally paid to have 130,000 copies of the sermon printed, though he did have it renamed New Knowledge in Christian Faith, And then had those copies sent to every Protestant pastor in the United States. Um, So the sermon had not just a big influence because of the people were there, but it really was spread all around the country and uh, received all sorts of response and uh, stirred up all sorts of conversation. But within the world of Presbyterians, there was some swift and serious uh, response, mainly by a pastor, Clarence McCartney, who was a uh, part of the Philadelphia Presbytery. McCartney uh, wrote a one of the things that he did is he wrote a uh, response titled uh, "Shall Unbelief Win?" I'm not sure how well circulated that was in comparison, uh, but the. Most of the historic records that I went through made some sort of mention, so it was at least uh, known in the time. And uh, this same man, Clarence McCartney, also led an effort to petition the General Assembly to address the New York Presbytery for not taking action against Fosdick. Uh, remember, Fosdick wasn't ordained, so he couldn't be directly uh, confronted uh, through the church courts. It was the Presbytery who had authorized him. Now, guys... I want to say, right now, there would be a temptation to get really bogged down in some of the politics of how Presbyterianism worked. I'm not going to, but in case you're not aware, uh, in Presbyterianism, uh, the General Assembly is the highest court to which all the churches are ultimately accountable. The Presbytery is more the local, regional level uh, of courts. Uh, within the Presbyterian Church. And, um, so what ended up happening is one presbytery petitioned the General Assembly because of what the concerns they had in the New York Presbytery for really not taking action against Fosdick. So the 1923 General Assembly, uh, this was uh, brought to the floor. And ultimately, um, the, the General Assembly condemned the New York Presbytery for laxness regarding FOSDIC and instructed them to report its corrective activity by the General Assembly in the following year. The vote, however, was concerning. Uh, it was pretty, uh, more or less a split vote. 439 uh, voted in favor of corrective action and 359 against. This is especially concerning uh, given that in the words of George Marsden it was the clearest case of open heresy in a hundred years. The divided vote demonstrated that bigger problems had developed in the Presbyterian church and that this would not be a fight without losses. So while the New York Presbytery said that they would follow up with corrective action, they didn't protest there at the General Assembly, um uh, no serious action was taken. They said, we'll do it, but they didn't. In fact, uh, furthermore, there were two openly liberal men who were ordained within that presbytery in the same year. Now, I don't really have a strong uh, knowledge of how divided that presbytery may have been. I do know that there were some uh, very important, influential, wealthy uh, men with strong political connections. Strongest example being the man who... uh Defended Fosdick at the, uh, through the process with the Presbytery. So there was some level of process, uh, from what I uh, researched. But, um, the man who, def- man who defended him was, uh, known to be tied up with lots of wealthy connections. I mean, we've already heard that Fosdick was tied up, had connections with Rockefeller. So there's a lot of money here. There's also politics, though, because the guy who defended, uh, Fosdick would later, um, hold a position with one, a cabinet position with, uh, I believe it was Eisenhower. Uh, though I might be getting the president wrong. Probably am. That was just kind of off the top of my head. But the point is, at the end of the day, the Presbytery did not take action against Fosdick. Um, and... Really, the way—in fact—they actually uh, ordained two more openly liberal men within that year before the next general assembly. However, before the general assembly really had time uh, to take action, Fosdick saw where things were going, and instead of creating more of a stir, uh, he chose to resign and just let issues rest. And that pretty much put an end to that—that immediate conflict. Although I think a lot had been exposed by this process on how. Divided, the Presbyterian Church really was, and uh, again, as T2's lesson last week elaborated on, uh, yeah, there's. This is only the beginning of the controversy within the PCUSA uh, that is really going to uh, end up uh, with quite a bit of division and conflict and uh, controversy. And while uh, Fosdick had uh, direct influence in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, would be gone because he's not in it. Uh, he did continue to exert influence through his radio broadcast and his, uh, the books that he was writing as well. In addition, continuing to serve, uh, as an adjunct faculty at Union Seminary, which was training Presbyterian ministers. So, we're nearing the end of the significant details in uh, Fosick's life, but it is, uh, the last major I'd like to note about Fosdick was uh, that in 1930, uh, J.D. Rockefeller uh, completed the building of a majestic church in New York uh, called uh, Riverside Church, and Rockefeller uh, sought out Fosdick to be the pastor of this church. At first, Fosdick uh, rejected uh, the request, saying that he didn't want to be associated with the richest man in the country. However, Re- Rockefeller convinced uh, Fosdick to stay, stating, Do you think more people will criticize you on account of my wealth than will criticize me on account of your theology? So whether it was that conversation that turned Fosdick or other factors, uh, he did ultimately accept the call. And so... And for those of you who aren't familiar with Riverside Church, and don't feel bad, I really wasn't familiar with it before uh, jumping into my studies on this either. Uh, it was a formidable building. I Listen to this description of the church uh, by Eric Metaxas. This church was no mere church. It was no—it was a spare no expenses cathedral to modernism and progress that had quite literally been modeled on Chartres Cathedral. It had a 392-foot tower and the world's larga, largest largest carillon, with 72 bells, among them the world's largest. It had a commanding view of the mighty Hudson and was strategically adjacent to Union Theological Seminary. It was, indeed, to influence the impressionable students of Union, Columbia, and Bernard along its theological lines. It continues to do so eight decades later. An interdenominational church, the worship there was described as having a variety of styles, from Quaker to High Church. And from the pulpit, Fosdick and other preachers addressed the social issues of the day, but likely very little biblical doctrine. Fosdick served Riverside Church for 18 years as its pastor before retiring, but continued an active ministry throughout. Through his writing, he wrote 45 books and speaking, till the old age of 91 years old when he passed away. But one other little uh, tidbit that I forgot to put in there about his connection with Rockefeller is he uh, did uh, was did was the pastor who officiated uh, Rockefeller's. Uh, funeral as well and so uh, just a final note on uh, on uh, Fosdick and his ministry he, he really is said to be one of the most influential and well known American pastors of the 20th century and his name was a name that was well known uh, in the first part of, of the century I think today uh, there are well known names like Rick Warren uh, that's really the category Fosdick would have fallen into um and while we don't know really hear his name today unless you're studying this issue or uh, other other issues related to the history of Protestantism in the 20th century um there is a name that we all know which is Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King once said that Fosdick was the greatest preacher of the century and he was known for and uh, MLK was known for frequently using material from Fosdick in his sermons so I guess I bring that up at the end here to say that even if you directly haven't heard Fosdick's name, uh, the MLK example would be one just small example about how his influence lived on because MLK is such a uh, frequently cited uh, man and really, I think safe to say universally known uh, figure. And uh, to know that this, uh, that Harry Emerson Fosdick had such an influence on MLK's thinking uh, helps us see how that influence traces through to today. So this is officially the intermission, I guess, of my lesson. We have looked at the life of Harry Emerson Fosdick, and what we're going to do now is turn to the Fosdick Sermon. So as we turn to the, the Harry Emerson Fosdick's famous sermon uh shall the fundamentalists win, uh, I think it's important to note that this whole lesson could have well been just on the sermon. Uh and been simply titled the Fosdick Sermon. Uh, in fact, some of the things that I listened to on this topic would just call it that, the Fosdick Sermon. Uh, because that's how significant this sermon was in the history and development of Protestantism and uh, in the 20th century. Uh There are Many, in fact, this sermon had such huge influence that there are several books on my bookshelf uh, that when I flipped them open to see if they would be helpful in my preparation for this lesson, uh, his name was found just purely in reference uh, to his, this sermon. There was probably one paragraph mentioning him in connection with the sermon. Uh, so again, it's uh, not many sermons that that, not many single sermons that gained this kind of historic notoriety. And so what I'd like to do uh, for the rest of this lesson is uh, provide an overview of the substance of the sermon, uh, to hear some of what Fosdick said in his own words, and to provide some brief commentary. I will not be giving a full refutation of his sermon. Time really isn't going to permit me uh, such a response. However, for those who are interested in a full refutation of liberal doctrines presented by Fosdick... I recommend uh, and Liberalism. Tito recommended it last week. I'll recommend it again. And uh, even more so, I'll come and uh, in the comments below, I will make sure to post links to uh, a free uh, PDF or Kindle version of the book, uh, along with a link to uh, a free um audiobook of it as well. Uh, so that's come, guys. I, I can't encourage you enough to uh, get a copy of uh, and Liberalism and read it. Uh, it's going to do so much more thorough job than i could do in this lesson of uh, confronting uh, that so the sermon the fosdick sermon uh, as i already say the sermon was preached on sunday may 21st 1922 at new york's first presbyterian church um and so let's just get right into it uh, Here's the main point of the Fosdick sermon. Uh, it's important to note from the beginning, his sermon was not primarily an effort to convince people of uh, his liberal take on cl- classic uh, Christian teaching. It's not primary, even though he, you can see what his liberal theology was, he's not really trying to convince people of that theology. I think most of the people who were directly listening to it, all at his church, already had bought into it. Rather, what the sermon is and why it's so significant, it was a refutation and condemnation of fundamentalists for their intolerance of liberalism. Again, he is attacking the intolerance of fundamentalism in this sermon. In Fosdick's mind, the fundamentalists had con- had committed the unforgivable sin. They were dividing the church. Here's his own words. This morning we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American church as though already they were not sufficiently split and riven. Further, Fosdick is clear that he is not speaking of all conservatives when he talks about the fundamentalists. uh, He acknowledges there are some tolerant conservatives, which I would say kind of questions how conservative, brings into question how conservative they really are, but more or less... Uh, there are people who affirm the historic Christian faith, some, and they could broadly be called conservatives. However, there are some who tolerate people of liberal perspective, and there are those who reject it and are militantly opposing it. And those are the people that he is referring to as the fundamentalists. And he even appreciates, So, and just to illustrate this point that he's not attacking all conservatives, Those conservatives which are tolerant, he even uh, expresses appreciation to. He says the best conservatives can often give lessons to the liberal in true liberality of spirit. But the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and intolerant. I also think it's important, as we're clarifying what he means by fundamentalist, that he didn't necessarily have... The modern concept that we would have in mind when we think of fundamentalists. I'm not sure what for you guys uh, uh, we mean by a fundamentalist. Uh, some have said a fundamentalist is just someone who's more conservative than than you or than me. Um, but really, I think in, in our time, a fundamentalist broadly more so considered as someone who is highly sectarian cut off from all other real Christians except the most strict and the most conservative of them, and who's withdrawn from cultural life. Um, and I, I don't think that Fosick quite had that in mind. I, I think really anybody who openly opposed liberal theology would have been lumped into this category of modernists. I mean, not of modernists, of fundamentalists. So it's important that we have a grasp of who is it that he's attacking? What is it that he is opposing when he talks about the fundamentalists? So as he develops his sermon, he uh, uses the image of Gamaliel confronting the Jewish leaders as they express their opposition to Peter and the other apostles uh, to drive out his point home. Placing liberal Christians on the side of Peter and the apostles, uh, Fosdick claims that the fundamentalists need to take note from Gamaliel when he cried out, "Refrain from these men and let them alone; for if this council or this work be of men, it will be overthrown, but if it is of God, yea, will not be you will be not be able to overthrow them, lest haply ye be found even to be fighting against God." So Fosdick sees in Gamaliel an example of what he would call the tolerant spirit of though opposing people, allowing it to coexist, and just letting God to uh, take care of it. And so while Fosdick's primary concern is the intolerant spirit of the fundamentalists, he views their dogged commitment to historic Christian dogma, uh, despite what he sees as, as overwhelming evidence to the contrary. If fundamentalist's first great sin is intolerance, according to Fosdick, their second great sin is rejecting the new knowledge that refutes historic Christian teaching. So if you think back earlier when I was describing uh, liberalism or modernism, uh, there's this idea of accepting the new knowledge that we have through uh, uh, scientific and philosophical developments. And he sees the problem of the fundamentalists as rejecting that new knowledge. And that's ultimately what leads them into their intolerance. So as Fosdick develops this sermon, he then provides some specific examples where he thinks that the fundamentalists are unnecessarily divisive. Uh, The three that he specifically elaborates on are the virgin birth of Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, and the second advent of Christ. So, in order to get a glance into his thinking, uh, let's uh, provide, uh, I want to just develop uh, each of these points uh, from Fosdick's perspective. So, regarding the virgin birth of Christ, Fosdick saw really three primary concerns. Uh, The first one is not what I was expecting, necessarily, uh, but he actually uh, pointed out that John and Paul in the New Testament didn't make explicit reference to the virgin birth. So he concludes from that that the virgin birth must not be that important. Um, the second reason that he gave, uh, more likely the reason we would guess, is that it's unscientific. Well, that's kind of the definition of a miracle, and nobody was ever trying to hide the fact that the virgin birth was a miracle. But for him, that was highly problematic, and that means that we shouldn't make this a requirement of belief, considering all the intellectual obstacles to receiving that. And the third uh, problem he found with the idea of the virgin birth is he, uh, he believed that it uh, mimicked patterns of uh, rel- many uh, religions of antiquity. Of the old pagan uh, religions, there would be uh, deities who had been born of a virgin, and he said, "Oh, this is just really Christianity, just kind of ripped that off from the pagan religions." So uh, these are some of the reasons why he said, not necessarily even so much trying to convince people to reject it, although he's clearly trying to make making somewhat of a case. More so to just make an argument for tolerance. Let's let's allow opposing views. There's good reasons to reject this, so let's not. Uh, get caught up on it, um, and make a big deal. If you want to really keep your belief in the virgin birth, that's great. But don't put that on other people, is more or less what he was saying. The second point that uh, Fosdick brings up is the inerrancy of the Bible. And uh, honestly, this was probably the most disappointing uh, section in the sense that, for the virgin birth, I had at least understood what his arguments were. I disagree with him, clearly, Uh, but I could conceive of where he was coming from. When he did his section on the inerrancy of the Bible, he really got focused on this idea of uh, dictation. Uh, There is a theory of inspiration that uh, most evangelicals uh, do not accept, which says that God literally, word for word, gave the authors their words as though they were... You know, he, they were just the hand in which God's words were written down. Now, our view of inerrancy is uh, is different. It, it's subtly different because we do believe every word literally came from God, but not for, from dictation. But Fosdick really got up caught up on this idea of dictation and used that as the as the primary thing which he attacked, which isn't even really the really a fair representation of an evangelical belief in inerrancy. So, that section was probably the least helpful as far as just kind of being able to grapple, because he didn't even grapple with the actual position of the fundamentalists. And then the last thing that he brought up as an issue, which really should not be dividing us, is the return of Christ. Now, when I first read this, this was almost the, this was about the closest thing to where I could have agreed with him. Because even in our church, even from Pastor T to you will hear uh, comments on how uh, eschatology uh, should not be something that divides us. We can have people who have different views of the end times, and uh, we can, um, even within the session of our own church, uh, we have uh, different uh, eschatological outlooks. And it seemed at first like that's what he was getting at, that there should be a uh, space for different eschatologies, and then he primarily attacked what was... Uh, what uh, appeared to me to be more of a dispensational ex- eschatology. Uh, but the more I read, read, the more I realized, oh, he's not just rejecting, uh like, the uh, dispensational premill uh, eschatology. He actually seems to be rejecting uh, a literal return of Christ. Uh, and it was when he was kind of... For each section, he kind of gave some reasons why you shouldn't have to hold to the traditional view. And then he uh, would posit a potential alternative. And the alternative that he posited in this section was, uh, these are his words. He said, and these Christians, when they say that Christ is coming, mean that slowly, it may be, but surely... His will and principles will be worked out by God's grace in human life and institutions until he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's a lot of flowery language to say something simple. He's saying it's not really so much that Jesus will physically return, that's important that we believe, but more so that the a Christ-likeness is manifesting itself in, and the people and institutions of the world. So not so much that Jesus himself comes back, but that the spirit of Christ is embodied in the world. That's the true return of Christ. Saying nothing of Jesus actually coming uh, to return as a judge and the actual end of human history. So in the conclusion of his sermon, uh, Fosdick really ends with uh, two final exhortations. As to the liberals, he tells them not to fall into the sin of intolerance that that has so captivated the fundamentalists. And he also tells, his second point of exhortation is for them to keep their priorities straight. And by keeping their priorities straight, he meant, remember, the most important thing is the affairs of this world. Uh, Fighting poverty, injustice, uh, and, and, uh, and matters related to war. And he said these things are more important than getting caught up in doctrine. In fact, he, uh, he provided a illustration in which he said, could you imagine, uh, two fellows who were fighting at a war and uh, got caught up in a debate about, uh, theology or doctrine? And then he acts as though he is an observer, saying that it would, uh, could you restrain your ign- indignation if you observe this? It's like, how dare we think about things that are so abstract, like miracles and the virgin birth, uh, while there are wars being fought, while there are people who are uh, dying of starvation, while great injustices are taking place. He then even went on to compare doctrinal matters to tiddlywinks and picadillos of religion and matters of poverty, justice, and war as the weightier matters. Fosdick concluded his sermon with this: these final words. God, keep us always so and ever increasing areas of Christian fellowship, intellectually hospitable, open-minded, liberty-loving, fair, tolerant, not with the tolerance of indifference, as though we did not care about the faith, but because always our major emphasis is upon the weightier matters of the law. There are so many places that I could go with this. So one more time, I'm going to say I recommend you to read Machen's uh, Christianity and Liberalism. Um, I'll, though I do want to, though not doing a point-by-point refutation, I do want to say a a note about his point on intolerance. Uh, Because he is so adamant uh, that this intolerance is uh, destructive of the church. And I think we have to really think about this. Uh, Because ultimately, on one hand, he wants to keep the church united. That, I think, is a legitimate concern that we should have. We, as Protestants, though we... Uh, affirm the necessity of sola scriptura and holding up uh, biblical teaching, uh, it should hurt our hearts when we see God's church being divided unnecessarily. Uh, consider Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus desires to have his church united. However, just because We desire to have the church united. It does not mean that we can ignore false teaching. I actually earlier today prepared two full pages of scripture references dealing with the necessity of confronting false teaching and, um, and false teachers. And I wanted to, would time permit, uh, read all of those verses to you and just take uh, five to ten minutes to read through them, to get, get a sense of the weight of how much the Bible speaks to the idea of false teachers and false teaching, and to also make just so evident that this idea of confronting false teaching is not just based on a couple of verses taken out of context. But it is a continuous theme throughout Scripture, urging the people of God to watch out for false teachers and to and false teaching and to confront it, which is what the fundamentalists were doing, and what is what the fundamentalists were being condemned for by Fosdick. Uh, we cannot uh, put unity uh, above confronting uh, falsehood within the church. The Bible is adamantly clear about that. And if we don't, then it raises the question of what is our unity in? Because it is the substance of what God has revealed to us in his word that should be the thing that unites us. And if, as has happened in the mainline uh, Presbyterian church and other mainline denominations, as they have prioritized um, unity over confronting error, they have become no church at all. Because the thing that unites them is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's word, but it has become the affairs of this world. And that is not fundamentally uh, the thing which brings Christ's church together. There is so much more that could be said on these topics. Uh, So much... uh, uh, more that could be addressed and articulated, so many more lessons that I really wanted to draw out of the life of Fosdick. But we're nearly almost at 50 minutes already, and I need to wrap this up. So I thank you all for uh, taking the time uh, to watch or to listen to this lesson. And uh, if you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk more about this. I'm also going to be putting together a source list and trying to make that available if there's anything I spoke of that uh, piques your interest.